this is episode number 11 of the Individual One Podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. (laughs) I am your host, John Ziegler. We're broadcasting from Los Angeles, California and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the brand new bi-weekly program which takes an honest and often hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective, because unfortunately no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. The liberal mainstream media has completely lost their minds and cannot be objective. And the conservative, now almost entirely state-run media, has been compromised and completely co-opted. We, however, here at the Individual One podcast have most definitely not been co-opted. Hope you've enjoyed the first 10 episodes of the show. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. We've got over 11,000 Twitter followers already at our Twitter handle, which is individual one, that's individual, the number one pod, individual one pod. So please make sure you follow us uh, there. Uh, also, if you've not yet done so, make sure you check out episodes number nine and number 10 with really good interviews with Bill Crystal, uh, the uh, conservative uh, commentator who is the uh, effect- effectively the godfather of the never Trump conservative movement in America. And uh, most recently in episode number 10, with former GOP congressman and conservative talk show host Joe Walsh, who really uh, deserves a lot of credit for being willing and able to let it all hang out there, despite the restrictions of being a nationally syndicated conservative talk show host. Uh, there's a little bit of news that I want to talk about before, the, I guess, the main feature of today's episode, which is a look at the Democratic race to take on Donald Trump. We talked a lot with Bill Kristol about whether or not it's possible for a Republican to challenge Donald Trump. I do not believe that that's the case, but I want to talk about where the Democrats stand and how and to what extent that might be playing into Donald Trump's hands for re-election. But before we get to that, I do want to at least mention that Paul Manafort, the former campaign chairman for Donald Trump, has been sentenced, at least in part, uh, for his crimes that he was convicted of and which he admitted and uh, it's it's still amazing to me that we've become so desensitized that the president of the United States campaign chairman going to prison is not a bigger deal. <laughs> but that's that's the world we live in now. Um, but he's only, at least in the first initial sentencing, only going to prison for at most less than four years. And that's amazing. A lot of people are outraged about it. But I think that there's a significance to this. Now, I don't want to overplay it because the reality is that he still has another sentencing left to go. And he may still get significant more jail time than what he currently has gotten. Uh, But based upon what we currently know about this, I have to tell you, at least based upon the judge's ruling, while uh, contrary to what Trump has complained about or tried to claim— Uh, This was not a a complete repudiation of the Russian collusion theory. Correct. But it was, I think, uh, an indication that there's quite possibly eventually going to be a collapse of that theory. And here's what I mean by that. Yeah, Trump claimed that vindications. I don't know how in the world you claim vindication for your campaign chairman only being sentenced to prison for less than four years. But that's the way Trump does things. Um, But. Uh, I can understand a little bit, though, about the idea that if you use logic, 
there's there's gotta there can't be a smoking gun here with regard to Russian collusion. Otherwise, why would he only be getting less than four years in prison? I mean, he has not been cooperative. He lied, according to the special counsel's office and the judge, after having already agreed to cooperate with them. And he lied about some serious things. Now, why he's lying, I'm still very curious about and, and not certain about. But it, it's, I guess, I, why I have always been very hesitant to buy into this collusion theory. There's a number of reasons. But one of them is, if that was happening, if there really was evidence of full-on collusion with Russia in the election, how is it that Michael Flynn, for instance, is being recommended zero jail time? How is it that even Paul Manafort is being uh, sentenced, at least in part, and at least initially, to less than four years? That's not much punishment for what would be massive crimes bordering on treason. And so I, I guess at this point, while Man he, clearly Trump has not been exonerated, you would think that there would be some blinking red light showing that this is what has happened, that there's going to be evidence of this. And I just, I don't see it. And uh, and so I do think, and this has been something that I've been trying to get out for quite a while. I've written columns about this at Mediate, about how Trump has won the expectations game, and that when Mueller's final report is out there, people are going to be very disappointed. Because there's not going to, it's not going to be a Manchurian candidate situation. It's going to be awful. For any rational world, but we don't live in a rational world. Correct. And I mean, that, that's the reality of it. We're, we're just not living in a world where we are able to be equipped with some of the things and react to the way that we should, that we're going to know for sure that Trump did mostly in his attempt to obstruct the Russian investigation. We're better than that. But we're not better than that. That's who we are. And Trump has purposely desensitized us and has taken advantage of that desensitization. So, you know, gun to my head, and I'm still open-minded to all this, because there's so much conflicting information and so many things that we're not 100% sure we know, we think we know, and so much reading of tea leaves, which can be very dangerous, especially when you start making conclusions based upon certain tea leaves and then further conclusions based on those conclusions, and you can start going down a rabbit hole. But gun to my head, I don't think that there's going to be much more than what we already know when Mueller is done. It's my opinion right now that the crux of this whole thing, as I've been saying for quite a while, was the Trump-Moscow Tower. That project was the crux of all of this. Now, that's not the biggest crime involved in this. It technically wasn't even a crime was highly inappropriate for the Republican presidential nominee to be trying to build a massive project in Moscow that may have involved effectively a bribe to Vladimir Putin with the penthouse, but technically not illegal. There was a lot of illegal stuff done to obstruct the investigation into that. Now, I'm still confused as to why there was so much obstruction. I mean, the, the level of obstruction here has been extreme, but you also have to consider that's partially Trump's own personality, his lack of understanding of our system, his lack of respect for our system, and the fact that he was just appealing to his cult. And I'm not being naive here. I am, I'm still open to the far more, more nefarious, or not, not you know, the Manchurian candidate uh, scenario, but I'm, I am still open to more 
sinister or more nefarious narratives, especially considering the Roger Stone situation where effectively his first campaign manager has, has been indicted on very serious crimes related to his coordination with WikiLeaks, which is essentially Russia. You cannot forget that. The Roger Stone dealing with WikiLeaks is in the real world, the Trump campaign dealing with Russia. It's just that the, the cult is never going to believe that because, you know, that's a degree of separation for them, which is more than they need to be able to rationalize anything they want. I love the poorly educated. So I took the, the Manafort uh, sentencing not as any sort of definitive statement about this, but it's certainly consistent with the idea that we're not going to get this nuclear bomb when Mueller is all said and done. That could be wrong, but that's where I am with on it right now. A couple other news stories that, in fact, one that has gotten a lot of attention today, and it's, it's important to point out, we're releasing the podcast about a day earlier than normal because of a scheduling issue. So I we're taping this on Saturday afternoon, Los Angeles time. Normally we do this Sunday morning, Los Angeles time. So it's that's just important uh, for context as far as what has happened and what has not happened. But on this Saturday, one of the biggest news stories is, is typically very strange and could be nothing or it could be very significant. And we, we may never know, but it's so classically Trump. And frankly, because of Trump's background, we, I can understand why it's being interpreted far more sinisterly than it might ordinarily be, although it's inherently weird and problematic on its face. I'm referring to the fact that the person who founded the massage parlor, where the New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft was apparently found allegedly on videotape engaging in prostitution, getting a happy ending at an Asian massage parlor, which, frankly, I don't understand why anyone's concerned about it. That's all it was. But that person, a woman by the name of Lee Yang, it's been now reported by Mother Jones. It's important to point out Mother Jones is an exceedingly left-wing news outlet, but some other respected people have picked up on it and, and seem to believe that it's credible, especially given other stories that have come out recently about Lee Yang that Lee Yang, a Trump political donor, we already knew from a, a report a few days ago that she bizarrely attended Donald Trump's Super Bowl party. Now think about this. Just think about it right there. <laughs> the woman who founded the massage parlor that the New England Patriots owner has been arrested for engaging in prostitution in was at the Super Bowl party of the President of the United States while they're watching the New England Patriots, Robert Kraft's team play, and she's getting close enough to Trump where they're taking a selfie together. All I know is what's on the internet. I mean, it's it's amazing, but that's what happened. And I, I would I would argue that if this happened to Bill Clinton, the conservative media right there would have enough material for the next several weeks. Just completely, you know, just speculating on what that means. Oh, Clinton must have gone to the massage parlors. This is all big cover-up. Kraft and Trump are in this together. You know, then the, the human trafficking angle would get blown up uh, way out of proportion based upon what we currently think we know. But that's not the whole story. I mean, that right there is an amazing story. It's amazing. I mean, even if it's irrelevant, it could be totally irrelevant. It's unreal on its face that she's at the president's Super Bowl party in Mar-a-Lago taking selfies with him. 
while they're watching the New England Patriots. <laughs> Just before Kraft gets arrested. I mean, this is what kind of world are we living in? The world we're living in is so amazing. And again, what's kind of back to the desensitization issue. This is a big story, but it's not that big a story because we are so desensitized to Trump world. But here's the essence of the Mother Jones story. So uh, they they report that this Li Yang is also someone who runs, and it's also I, I want to make sure we're clear. She doesn't currently own the massage parlor. That's an important point that seems to be getting lost here. She f- she founded it. She did own it. She doesn't currently own it, although. Apparently, she still has ties to that to that business, if you will. Um, so, But I, I always think it's important that when someone says, well, they're the former something or other. Well, former is maybe the most powerful world word in the English language. Former means you have no real contact with that. It, at least you might not have any real contact or power over it. I don't know who currently owns it. But it's important that just for the record, she doesn't currently own that massage parlor. But she does apparently currently run an investment business. So she's gone up in the world. Well, maybe she's gone down the world. Maybe she's gone down the world. Maybe maybe she's fallen from massage parlor owner to, to running an investment business that has offered to sell Chinese clients access to Donald Trump and his family. All I know is what's on the Internet. Well, if you look on the Internet, well, you're not going to find that much. Because while it used to all be on her website, she advertised this. Now, it was in Chinese, so apparently no one could read it. But she was advertising all this on her website, except weirdly, suspiciously, and I'm sure purely coincidentally, the the website stopped functioning the day that the story about Yang attending Trump's Super Bowl party broke. Just a coincidence, right? That's what Cult 45 would believe. I love the poorly educated. <laughs> and also, by the way, Yang's Facebook page disappeared at the same time. Just a coincidence, right? All I know is what's on the Internet. <laughs> now, what does this story really mean? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, this is so bizarre. My, the, the, much like the Russian story, there is both the the super nefarious conspiracy theory that is at least somewhat plausible given Trump's background. And then there's the, what I would call the Oxum's razor that Trump is just so low brow and so corrupt and has such a, uh, a, um, a, a, a lack of an aversion to grift, uh, that this is really just someone who is grifting off of the name of Donald Trump, grifting off of access, which they have gained by having donated money to the Trump political operation, knowing the right people, being in the right places. Uh, it is certainly consistent with the Chinese culture. That, that It sounds to me like Yang is effectively selling the perception that she is close to Trump because look at my website. There's photos of me and Trump. We're at the Super Bowl party together. And, you know, I've got photos with me and all these other important people. Do business with me and I'll get you access to Trump. Now, is that true? Is it exaggeration or is it total bullshit? I don't know. Someone should investigate that. My guess is it's at least an exaggeration. 
that this woman is trading off of the perception of access to the president. That doesn't mean, based upon what we know of Donald Trump, <laughs> that there's nothing to this. Because this also goes to another subject that I've discussed on this uh, individual one podcast before. And that is that Trump is often not just not what he claims to be. He's the opposite of what he claims to be. Or he takes a weakness and he tries to make it into a strength. Well, during the campaign, he told us constantly he was going to make new deals with China. New deals with China because China was ripping us off. Remember? China was ripping us off. No one's going to be tougher on China than me. Well, that's all. That was, you know, there's a good argument to be made that that's all baloney and that this is a classic example of Trump acting in the exact opposite way, where he's perfectly fine, or at least has been so far, with this seedy person getting close to him and selling access to him. Potentially, as she's been bragging, you know, to, to, to do deals via the Chinese and the Trump White House. Again, we need some evidence that this has resulted in hard and fast results. But, you know, Trump continues to do this tariff dance with China. I mean, it seems like almost every single day when I check the stock market, there's another headline, stocks up as uh, tensions between China and Trump ease, or stocks down as hopes for deal between Trump and Russia fade. I mean, it's almost a daily basis situation. And I, and I love the fact that Trump, only Trump can do this. There, there was no issue with the tariffs before Trump took office. Trump can create a problem by, by you know, causing these tariffs to become an issue. In fact, causing the stock market to, at times to go way down and having, uh, you know, uh, U.S. farmers lose out on, uh, on uh, business in China. And then when the, the issue that he created eventually gets somewhat resolved or almost sur uh, sur uh, resolved, he takes credit for that. <laughs> How does that work? I mean, my six-year-old daughter, if she breaks a window and, you know, she cleans up the, the pieces of the window and puts them in the trash, she does not get credit for that. That's not the way, it's not the way that works. But apparently with Trump it does, and certainly with his base it does. And then speaking of weird stories, and this, I think, goes to a much larger issue of how liberals in general and the media in particular are doing Trump a lot of favors by, by diving down every damn rabbit hole, no matter how ridiculous it is, and they end up getting burned, and a lot of times false stories get reported, and then Trump can call it fake news, and his his cult can say, see, nothing should be believed because one story out of a thousand turned out not to be true. As of this taping, one of the top trending items on Twitter is hashtag fake Melania. Now, this is all because of some photographs of Donald Trump coming off his uh, Air Force One in Florida on his way to Mar-a-Lago with his wife, Melania, who's wearing rather large sunglasses so you can't see her eyes. And she's holding his hand in a way that's far more affectionate than normal. And she seems more relaxed than normal. And to be clear, the, the photo of her, it, it doesn't really look like the Melania that you would normally expect. It's not a good photo. Now, how in the world this translates to the idea that somehow uh, Donald Trump and the White House <laughs> is stupid enough to create a fake Melania? <laughs> I mean, come on, people. A, a fake Melania, uh, which is, I, and, and I think most of the people tweeting this are at least somewhat serious, that they think that 
that the person standing next to Trump is not really Melania. Um, folks, can we put on our thinking caps here for a second? And this is where, you know, I differ on a lot of Trump critics. I don't think Trump is that dumb. But you would have to be, especially when it comes to street smarts, but you would have to be an imbecile uh, on a level uh, of epic proportions. I mean, you would have to have uh, less than a, uh, you know, like an 80 IQ, almost to the point of uh, of being brain damaged, to to think that it would be worth whatever advantage you might get by being able to walk, pretend that your wife is with you. I mean, there's no downside to him going to Mar-a-Lago alone. None. Zero. So, so, so the risk-reward ratio in creating a, a fake Melania is is off the charts. Not to mention, it certainly looks a lot like her, not the best version of Melania I've ever seen, but it makes no damn sense. And there's no evidence for it. And of course, it, it's hilarious to me that most of these same people, of course, are anti-Trump people. It's not the pro-Trump people that are saying that this is a fake Melania. It's the anti-Trump people that's pretending this is a fake Melania. Yet it was the pro-Trump people that were pretending, remember, that Hillary Clinton had a double. Remember that? During the campaign when she collapsed and then came out, you know, short time later, that there was there were serious people who were saying on the right that this is not the real Hillary Clinton. Come on, people. Please. I mean, seriously. Come on. We're better than that. I don't think we are. I'm not sure we are better than that. Because frankly, to most people, it's just... All I know is what's on the internet. And, well, a lot of it's not true. And it doesn't help. It's not helpful, people. Knock it off. It does not help when it comes to the credibility uh, of real stories that are actually important and that are true about who the President of the United States and the leader of the free world actually is. Now, a lot of the focus of the Individual One podcast is on two things. Is he going to be able to serve out his first term, which as of the last edition of this podcast, we put the percentage of that happening at 12 percent. And is he going to be reelected at the last episode of this podcast? We put the percentage at 40 percent. Again, please, no wagering. This is purely for entertainment purposes only. Uh, Today, I want to take a little bit of time, and I'm sure we'll do this many times in the future, assuming that the podcast continues as planned. I want to take a look at the Democratic field, because we haven't really done that in any depth as of yet. I've said numerous times that Joe Biden, former vice president of the United States, is the person who has the best chance of beating Donald Trump. And in fact, barring a black swan event, I believe that Joe Biden would beat Donald Trump. Uh, Let me explain why that is before I go through the rest of the field, because I'm still not 100 percent convinced that Joe Biden is going to run, although there's some signs that he is, for instance, Michael Bloomberg not running. Uh, Sherrod Brown, the uh, senator from Ohio, I think that's a sign that Joe Biden is running because those two guys, uh, it, you know, them deciding not to run is consistent with them thinking, oh, Joe Biden's getting in and I don't have a path or that I don't want to get in his way because he's the one that has the best chance of winning. And, and almost anybody who knows anything about politics will tell you Joe Biden has the best shot. Why is that? Because I, I, I want to make sure people understand why that is. And, and the main reason is not because Joe Biden's any great 
candidate. I mean, I can't even believe that I'm suggesting he might be the best candidate because I've never been a Joe Biden fan. He's always seemed like a nice enough guy, but he's a goofball. He's a train wreck when it comes to uh, his own gaffes. I mean, he he is a bigger gaffe machine than Sarah Palin was in the 2008 uh, election. And I did a documentary proving that, except just that the media ignored it. And so when the media ignores it, it doesn't become a narrative. And, um, but, but, you know, he, he, at least he's, he's not a whack job liberal, although he's going to have to pretend to be one if he, if he wants the nomination. Uh, he's probably one of the last of the Mohicans when it comes to being a somewhat moderate Democrat, but more importantly than that, he at least knows some actual Republicans. <laughs> he's actually hung out with some actual Republicans. He knew Ronald Reagan. He knew George Bush. I mean, he, he at least has, has maybe by osmosis, uh, taken in the idea that not everything about uh, republicanism or conservatism as it used to be prior to Trump is a bad thing. Uh, but more importantly than that, he is the one guy that can bridge that divide, the divide between, you know, where we were before Trump and getting back to some semblance of normalcy, while also being Barack Obama's vice president for eight years, he clearly is able to tap in to the Obama legacy and coalition. And so he, he brings some unique things to the table. Obviously experience, having been in the White House for eight years as vice president. He doesn't scare the living daylights out of uh, you know non-Trump Republicans. There are a few of us, maybe like 30 of us left. Uh, you know now we, now we've lost Glenn Beck for sure. Uh, but I mean the reality is there's not many, but there's some and in some states we might matter, but there's also still some moderate Democrats out there that tend to vote for Republicans in presidential elections because people are, you know, some of the choices are too scary. Like they did not like Hillary Clinton. Joe Biden doesn't scare very many people. And that's the key, really. That's why Hillary lost. She scared people, rightly or wrongly. Joe Biden doesn't do that. And specifically, taking this out of the theoretical into the practical, Joe Biden plays very well in the three critical states. See, we already know exactly what the battleground for 2020 is going to be, assuming it's Trump versus a Democrat. We have the data. It's called the 2016 election. And we know that there were three very close states that Trump won in upsets that caused him to win the presidency. Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. That's the whole shooting match. If Trump does not win those three states again, he loses. And that's it. That's ballgame. Correct. There is no other scenario. Zero. There's only, there's only one other state that could possibly flip to Trump, and that would be New Hampshire. And I think that's four electoral college votes. It's totally ir irrelevant. So using any semblance of history and logic, if, if a Democrat wins Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, ball game. Ball game. It's over. And in those states, Pennsylvania is basically Joe Biden's adopted home state, grew up in Scranton. He'll tell you about that like every half second if you if you allowed him to. Um, and, uh, you know, Michigan and Wisconsin are uh, upper Midwest, Midwestern states where his type of Democrat still plays very well. And let's face it, they didn't turn out for Hillary. Largely because the black vote in in Michigan did not turn out for Hillary. 
and white people, white liberals in Wisconsin were too complacent. They're not going to be complacent this time around. The white liberals in Wisconsin are going to get their asses to the polls no matter what because they don't want to have it hung around their necks that they elected Donald Trump again. Well, being able to tap into the Obama legacy helps Biden with the black vote. Although it's amazing, people are already, and this is why I'm skeptical that Joe Biden can be the nominee for the Democratic Party, they're already attacking Joe Biden with things that happened like back in the 1970s, where he's making statements that now seem not racist, but, you know, a little insensitive to black people. And I'm like, first of all, is there not a statute of limitations on things that happened 45 years ago? But secondly, he was Barack Obama's vice president for eight fucking years. Excuse my French. Does that not absolve him from any consideration of a charge of not supporting black people? It's amazing to me. Um, But Biden is the one, if you want to beat Donald Trump, and Trump has effectively said this, uh, that, that the Democrats should nominate. Are they going to? I have my doubts. And I think one of the biggest problems is, and, and, and if I was, God forbid, if I was running the Democratic Party, <laughs> which is laughable on its face because I'm way more conservative than Donald Trump is, uh, here's what I would be recommending. If you guys want Joe Biden to be the nominee, here's what you got to do. You cannot anoint him because we saw what happened with Hillary Clinton. That did not work, and the Bernie Sanders people got all pissed off. But you should be paving his way, and you can do that without telling people you got to go vote for Joe Biden. You only do that in an emergency. You know that But here's what should be happening. You know what should be happening? Michelle Obama, if they want Joe Biden to be the nominee. Michelle Obama should go on, I don't know, Ellen or maybe a political show, maybe on maybe maybe Rachel Maddow or both, maybe both. She should go on and she should make a very dramatic statement, not mentioning Joe Biden by name, but saying that the tone of the beginning of this campaign is bothering her and that Democrats need to knock it off when it comes to ripping people about things that happened way in the past. And let's focus on one thing and beating Donald Trump. That if that message came from Michelle Obama and it, and it, it intimidated people into starting these little brush fires, like when Joe Biden says that Mike Pence is a decent guy and he has to retract that because he gets attacked online. Because otherwise, if they don't do this, if they don't draw a line in the sand right now and say, knock it off, Joe Biden's going to get eaten alive. It's going to be a death of a thousand cuts. And at his age and given who he is, I don't think he can survive that against the nature of what looks like are going to be his primary opponents. So let's take a look at who those primary opponents are. We already know Bernie Sanders is in. Bernie Sanders, I think, actually helps Joe Biden. Because I don't think Bernie Sanders can win the nomination. And I think he takes up a lot of the energy from the the progressive whack jobs. Uh, He's a socialist. He plays right into Donald Trump's hands. Donald Trump is making this election all about we will never be socialist, uh, which is a good message based upon the polling Uh, It might not be a good message for much longer, given where we're headed in this country. But for now, it's a winning message. And so I think having Bernie in there helps Biden. It also helps him because it makes Joe Biden not seem so fucking old. Uh, So I think that's 
I think that's part of what's going on here. Uh, the, so I, if I, if you're rooting for Joe Biden, I think you should be happy that Bernie Sanders is in there because that holds down, like, for instance, a Kamala Harris or a Cory Booker or Elizabeth Warren. Although, uh, you know, I, I think Warren is in big trouble. Elizabeth Warren, the senator from Massachusetts, I have said it's not doesn't take a rocket scientist ever since the DNA test was such a disaster. I think she is toast. I think she is desperate. She is flailing. She's doing poorly even in New Hampshire, even though it's almost a year out. But these things matter. How does she turn that around? I don't see how she does turn that around because this is all about biography and style now, right? Especially for liberals. Liberals love your biography. That's why Barack Obama became the first black president. Half black, half white. You know, they, 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 they love that whole narrative about Barack Obama. Uh, first black president. So Elizabeth Warren, yeah, she would be the first female, but they, I don't think they think that she can beat Trump. I think they, they, they've they seen it. It's almost like they say, well, we've seen this movie before. Trump knocked her block off on the DNA test. We're not going there. We're not doing Hillary too. And I think to a lot of people, this feels like Hillary too uh, when it comes to Elizabeth Warren. So it wouldn't shock me if she's out of the race before the primaries even begin. Uh Cory Booker and Kamala Harris, both being the black candidates, both being U.S. senators, I think they hurt each other, which also helps Joe Biden in theory, because as long as the black vote doesn't coalesce around one candidate, they're not going to be able to get up to you know where Joe will be in the polls, which will be in the, in the 20s or maybe even the low 30s, at least at the beginning. So as long as Booker and Harris are as two black candidates are splitting the black vote, that also helps uh, Joe Biden. Now, because Kamala Harris is a woman, I think that gives her the advantage over Booker with who could break out. I mean, to me, Kamala Harris is the person that could theoretically become the Obama of this election cycle, where she just explodes once liberals fall in love with her narrative and her biography. She's no Barack Obama, let's be clear. But because she's black, because uh, she and, and has similar racial background uh, to Barack Obama, and because she's also a woman, now she can make history. Now we got history on our hands, and liberals love making history, especially when it comes to electing the first this or the first that, uh, and Harris certainly qualifies. What works against her, though, is that she's from here in California. And while the California primary has been moved way up and will be far more influential in the nominating process, I think it hurts her with the rest of the country because I think uh, most of the rest of the country now looks at California as a bunch of freaking wackadoodles, which they should. And I, I think that that harms her. I'm not sure she plays in Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania. I really don't. Uh, I think she could very easily lose to Donald Trump in those three states. And again, that's really what it's all about. Uh, there are a couple other candidates, a former governor, uh, John Hickenloper, who I don't think has any chance. But the reason I mention him is because he made a statement uh, just, I think, yesterday on MSNBC, which I think shows you where the entire Democratic nominating process is going. He was asked several times, I think on Morning Joe, whether or not he considers himself to be a capitalist. And he refused to say that he was. Now, it went, and, and he's supposed to be the moderate guy, all right? So when the moderate in the Democratic Party is afraid to call himself a capitalist because being a capitalist might be toxic in a Democratic primary, 
you got problems. Correct. I mean, this this is playing right into Donald Trump's hands. This is not the environment where someone who is well suited to beating Donald Trump is likely to win. Now, someone who might be well suited is uh, Amy Klobuchar uh, from Minnesota, the senator. Now, she's been attacked in a weird way because she's apparently got a very bad temperament with her employees and thrown stuff at them and she treats them badly. And I'm thinking against Trump, that is actually a positive. I mean, Trump, Trump craps all over former employees publicly like Jeff Sessions. He's still doing it today. So how that hurts her against Trump, I have no idea. I can see how in a Democratic primary, given the constitution of Democratic primary, very liberal voters, that might be offensive. But I just don't see... Her catching fire, I think she would be a threat against Trump. I really do. I think I mean, she would be just as much of a threat against Trump, almost as much of a threat against Trump as Joe Biden without the gaffes, at least so far from what we've seen. And But her whole deal would be Iowa. I mean, she's from Minnesota. If she doesn't win Iowa, forget about it. I could see that happening. I can conceive of it. But she's got some heavy weights around her ankles, largely because of that narrative of her being a bad boss uh, and not being super liberal. Those are two things that are going to really make it difficult because you got to remember all the energy on the Democratic side is on the super progressive end of things. Uh, there's another governor, Jay Inslee, who's going to make his candidacy all about, from Washington the, uh, State, all about global warming, which... <laughs> think is a really bad way uh, to go into a general election. Uh, he has, I mean, Washington state is not exactly a great electoral base. I think he would play right into Donald Trump's hands in almost every way. And it would be a really bad idea. And he doesn't have the celebrity to compete with some of the other people that would likely be Democratic candidates. Uh, Beto O'Rourke is going to get a lot of play if he gets in. There are some signs that he will. There's some signs that he's looking to be Joe Biden's vice presidential nominee. I'm not a big fan of Beto, not even because he's a liberal, but just he seems really weird, uh, really flaky, uh, too flaky uh, to be president, in my view, even against Trump. I, I mean, I don't think he can win Texas, his home state. He almost beat Ted Cruz, and Cruz is not a great candidate, uh, but it wasn't even that close. I, I said all along he was never going to beat Ted Cruz. I also have never been a believer that running for president unemployed is a good look. I, I, I just, I seriously, I don't think that that, I don't think that works. I mean, in, in history shows it doesn't work. Uh, you know, Hillary Clinton, Bob Dole, uh, you know, there's, there's others that have done it. And when you're not in a position uh, Mitt Romney was effectively unemployed. I mean, although he's rich as hell. But the point, I mean, the, the point is people, I think, are much more successful when they're in a position. It's just a subconscious, maybe it's a potency thing. I don't know. But the reality is I, I, I don't see Beto O'Rourke winning the Democratic nomination. If he does, I think he would be one of the candidates that Trump would be thrilled to run against. Uh, uh, and that would be a bad move by the Democrats. Uh, there are a couple others that are running. Uh, Julian Castro, ex-San uh, Antonio mayor. I don't think he has any shot. Uh, Tulsi uh, Gabbard, who is a congresswoman from Hawaii. She's really interesting. And I mean, most people on, on the right think that she's uh, effectively maybe a pro-terrorist. Uh, um, you know, she has a great look 
and she's a good speaker and she seems smart. And I could see her maybe being a vice presidential nominee for the right person. Uh, but there's no way she's going to get the traction uh, to be the, the Democratic presidential nominee. Uh, Kristen Gildebrand, Senator from New York. Uh, I don't see it's happen. I don't see it happening. Uh, you know, she's, go- she's doing terribly in the polls. I don't see, yes, she's the first woman, uh, but I don't know other than being a woman, what she brings to the table in a way that's going to excite Democrats. Um, and, and that pretty much rounds out the field. There's the, the, um, mayor of South Bend, Indiana, uh, Pete Buttigieg, who gets a lot of play for some reason people love him he's gay but he's also a veteran and he's from the midwest so i guess i guess you know in theory (laughs) his biography could could catch fire in a in a democratic primary although that would be hard for me to imagine that the the white mayor of south bend indiana ends up becoming the democratic nominee but i guess there's enough uniqueness about his his persona and his biography, I guess that stranger things have happened. So I don't know who's going to be the Democratic nominee. It's it's kind of ridiculous for me to try to put myself in the place of the progressive liberal voter. It's almost like as a husband trying to figure out what your wife's going to do. <laughs> I mean, you, you, you might be able to explain it after it happens, but you have no way of predicting what's going to happen. So I'll be able to explain why Democrats did what they did afterwards, but predicting it is exceedingly difficult because I can't put myself 100% in their mindset. Their brains should be telling them Joe Biden. If the, if the, if the point is to beat Donald Trump, Joe Biden's the safest bet. And if and Donald Trump really is a national and international emergency and must be defeated, then you should act like it. And you should nominate Joe Biden, assuming he runs, which we don't even know for sure if that's the case. All right, so that's the first analysis of the Democratic field by me for the Individual One podcast. In that light, I am going to keep the percentage chance that Donald Trump wins re-election at 40%. I'll keep it at that number for now. I'm going to slightly reduce the chances that he doesn't finish his first term, partially because of that Paul Manafort sentencing. So I'm going to put that back down to 10% chances that Donald Trump does not finish his first term in office. That'll do it for episode number 11 of the Individual One podcast. Please make sure you subscribe to, rate, review the show, and share it via social media, word of mouth, Twitter, Facebook, what have you. Uh, And until next time, which will be a Wednesday morning, Los Angeles time. Uh, This has been the Individual One Podcast. My name is John Ziegler. You're listening to the Global Story Network.